so last uh, summer when we were kind of charting out um, the messages for the year. I was hey, real reading- quick, do you have a video? Can you get a video you can turn on? Yeah, uh, sure. How's that? Well, it's sideways. That's kind of barbaric if you want to do that, but. <laughs> that better? That is better, yeah. All right. So uh, I was reading Tim Keller's book on forgiveness, and uh, it made me think that uh, after we finished Revelation, where everybody felt like they were sort of drinking out of a fire hose, that uh, uh, maybe we would back away and uh, and do something that's a little less content rich, but will get us thinking. And I started thinking about forgiveness and some of the things that he said about it. And uh, I wanted to do a, a short series on forgiveness, just handling the the three real key questions uh, on forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Uh, what does uh, forgiveness look like? Um, how do I receive forgiveness? And um, in uh, all of the teachings of Jesus, there's a... Um, there's always the dual transaction that we we have to recognize who God is and be ready to uh, accept his forgiveness. And that seems to be both a, a little bit of a chicken and egg. Do we forgive others before we're forgiven or do we uh, receive forgiveness before we can forgive others? And one of the things that was real interesting about Keller's book was that he said, we don't even know about forgiveness without Jesus because in the Greek culture where he lived the Roman culture where he lived and all the cultures except for the Judaic culture there's no such thing as forgiveness there's pity there's excuses but to forgive somebody would be to sink to their level and the Romans would never do that and so it, uh, he talked a little bit about the honor-shame culture that would have been in that, that part of the world, and that forgiveness was just not something they did. You would not sink to the level of forgiveness. Oh, so I, um, I said, okay, well, we learned about forgiveness from Jesus. He was uh, pretty insistent on it. He, he said, uh, uh, even in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Lord's Prayer, he said that we are to... Uh, receive forgiveness, were to ask God, forgive us our sins. And then he he added the caveat, as we forgive those who sin against us. And so the receiving of forgiveness from God is always linked with uh, us forgiving others. And and so we'll be kind of interested to explore that beginning with the parable that you're going to handle tonight. So we're going to deal with the three questions over the three weeks. One, uh, what is forgiveness? Uh, Two, how do I extend and receive forgiveness? And then the last one I'm going to do uh, right before Thanksgiving. Is there anything that I've done that has put me out of the reach of God's forgiveness? Because that seems to be something that a lot of people think about. Have I done something that's too, too far for even God to forgive? What? What is the unpardonable sin? How does how does that work? Have have I uh, said something, done something, uh, omitted something, neglected something that uh, puts me out of the reach of God's forgiveness? So we're going to deal with those three uh, uh, questions beginning with this week, and uh, and they all kind of center around the parable in uh, Matthew chapter eighteen, and right ahead of that parable. Uh, it was uh, a, an interesting thing that I, I connect with the parable. That's where Jesus said, if you're at the altar, if you're presenting your gifts to God and you remember that your brother has something against you, go make it right. And I went, wait a minute, I'm worshiping. And even as I worship, I, if there's a need for forgiveness, I'm supposed to leave worship and go make it right. And the answer is yes, that's how important it is to God. That's how important it is to uh, to extend and receive forgiveness. So uh, that's where we're headed, and we're beginning with the parable. 
uh, Gary, that you're going to unpack tonight. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. All right, very good. Appreciate that. Uh, I'm not going to begin in verse 21, though. I want to actually uh, go ahead, you know, before that a little bit. I want to pick up at verse 15. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit what's going on there before we get into the parable itself. Uh, but I really want to actually start with verse 20. Uh, and so I'm wondering if someone in the room here could possibly read Matthew 18, uh, verse 24. So I want to just sit on that for a minute, and then we'll go back and forth a little bit. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. All right. What does that mean? You've heard this verse probably your whole life. Uh, I'm curious, just on a cursory discussion, what does that mean? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Agreement. All right, online we have agreement. What'd you, uh, give me, what'd you, what was your answer, Nicola? I said he's here with us right now because there's more than obviously two people. All right. The question that I always, always have had when I read this two or three, what does that mean for one? If Jesus is with us and there's two or three gathered, what if it's just me? Does that mean he's not there? The spirit is there, like he was influenced. Man, look at you coming with answers. <laughs> the uh, yeah, I mean that is true, but I want to actually take it a little bit further and suggest a lot of times that this verse, verse twenty, doesn't necessarily mean what we've ascribed to it over the years. And I'm not bringing some kind of new crazy teaching. There goes Gary taking the Bible out of some weird context. What I'm actually wanting to do is apply context to it. Uh, which means I want I want to do a little bit of Bible study 101 with you, and it's going to be a very short class, and I hope it's something that you, you don't need anyway. I'm wondering this. Have you ever at any time in your life had something that you were wrestling with, and you were like, well, I wonder what the Bible says, and you just close your eyes and you flip that thing open and do one of these? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. For instance, Bill. Let's do it right now. You and me, buddy. You and me. All right. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the question you're wrestling with. Whether or not you let Nancy know what you said at breakfast this morning. All right. So now I need you to just close your eyes and just flip <laughs> randomly somewhere in there and just point to something. And let's see what guidance you get. Did you have microphones in my house? This what? <laughs> what? Just, just, just any place. Yeah, because you're looking for God's will for your life right now. So you just point to any place. And this is the answer to your conundrum. All right. Whether or not you should tell Nancy about what you said this uh, morning at breakfast, what does it say? For you have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and in my name. You might need to stop reading. All right. That actually worked out a lot better than I thought it was going to see. You know, the best part about this is I have this recorded, and that will. All right. I mean, you could you could have found that you you could have went anywhere else, but I, and I'm not in any way suggesting this is now God's will for your life. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you right off that that is I'm innocent. Yeah, I didn't do it. The yeah, that was perfect. Uh, I can't wait to tell John about that one. The no, but here's the idea: when you're looking for like the scriptures, you're trying to figure out what God will in a certain situation, or what does even a verse mean. That's not the way to do it. That is the last way to do it. You get, but I've known people who do that. I've known people who do that, and and it's as crazy as outlandish. Uh, because when you're trying to interpret the particular meaning of a verse or something, what's the key word? I'm looking for one word that helps, you know, you figure out what's going on in a particular verse. Context. Context. That's exactly it. Uh, so we, when you try to figure out what the context, what does that mean? you got to figure out, all right, what's it say before it? What's it say after it? What does the rest of the chapter that it's in have to say about this verse? What does the whole book have to say about it? And then what's the context of the whole scripture that surrounds it? Bible 101. 
There it is. That That is the best and pretty much I'd say the only way any of us should be reading the Bible. I'd say all that to say this. When we look at verse 20 of chapter 18, a lot of people ascribe that. Well, when we have two or three people get together and we pray for anything, God is there with us. But that's not the context of what Jesus was talking about when he said that. And we're going to see this in action shortly. We're going to we're going to swing back to that. But I wanted to start there because I wanted to start with this idea of context where now where we're going to go is Matthew 18. We're going to go a few verses before that to verse 15. I'm going to take a survey for my there's a couple of different ways this reads, depending on the version that you have. Uh, verse 15. Somebody read it for me. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Uh, if they listen to you, you have won them over. All right. Does anybody have anything that's slightly different, especially there at the beginning? If another alone. All right, well, hang on. What'd you say, Nelson? Alone. All right. When you Sheila, alone. Sins against you. Against you? ESV, against you. Yeah, all right. That's what I have. It's amazing to me that if you look at, because uh, I have my handy-dandy little Bible app here where I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven translations up. Most of them will say, if your brother sins. Go. A few have against you. Now, the a lot of you know scholars believe that that was a later edition. A lot of scholars also will tell you that it's possible that just the way the end of one word sounds alludes to against you. But most ancient manuscripts don't have that, and so I'm curious if you take against you out. How does that verse change? How does the meaning of that verse change? It changes a lot because it's saying that if, if anybody sins, then I need to go chat a little chat with them about it. All right. And I'm doing something that they've done to somebody else or some other place or have heard about. Okay. What else? I How's... must be wrong. He's asking. No, 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 no. I want to get more uh, uh, input. How does it change? This is like if someone, uh, you're driving in your car, they hit your car. It's a trespass, you know, it's car trespass. They they hit your car and they drive off, you know, and you you hope for forgiveness, but they're going to call and send something however they want to do and get the situation clear. But if they don't, ultimately it's up to God. Well, if somebody hits your car, that's a grievance against you, right? Yeah. All right. So now that's that's a situation that you can go and talk to them about. All right. But if the scripture says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault, then all of a sudden we're not necessarily talking about a personal grievance, but something going on in their life that we have a concern about. Now Here's the question. Actually, I want to make sure I don't skip ahead too far because I feel like I'm about to. Uh, let me back up. The, if absent, the process is not intended merely for dealing with personal grievances, but rather any sinful conduct. Now, I'm going to be asking a question in a minute about what the Bible says. Okay, let me back up. What is your first instinct when you hear this? I mean, it seems like it could it be judgmental. Yeah, what's the Bible say about that? You are uh, the only kind of judgment you should have is for Christians. You don't judge against non-believers. That's actually pretty good. Uh, and she's going to lead the lesson in a minute because that was uh, we were going to go there uh, in a few minutes. The Bible says judge not. I can't tell you how many times I've heard even a non-believer say, you're just, you're just being judgmental. You're being hypocritical. You're not supposed to judge. Jesus said, don't judge. Is that a fact? No. No, it is a fact. He, <laughs> no, well, he actually said that. But, but context. Right. Right. Yeah. What did he actually say? All right. Let's look at Matthew 7. Let's jump to Matthew 7, 1. And let's look at that in context. Because not... 
we we don't see here where Jesus is saying don't judge, even though his first words are judge not, that you not be not judged. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So even in this instance, we see where Jesus is saying, his words aren't exactly don't judge. He's saying, when you judge, be sure you've got your stuff in order. All right. Because we are called to judge. And Sheila hit it right on because uh, we're going to see in a minute where Paul actually says this is the parameters by which we are to judge and who we're to judge and how we're supposed to be maybe even judge differently. Now, I promise you, we are going to get to forgiveness and we're going to do it very quick. Uh, so. Verse 16. 7, 16. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a good question, Nelson. Now, we're back in chapter 18. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're right back into, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Uh, and in that, understand what we're talking about. It's not necessarily telling you to point out, you're not pointing out their faults. Uh, so much as you're looking for an opportunity to look, this is what we perceive you are doing wrong. This We have a concern. God has a stand in this matter, and we don't see you living a life that meets those standards. Uh, that's a conversation that needs to be had between Christians, uh, especially one mature Christian to someone else who might be struggling. But And what's the ultimate goal of this conversation? Repentance. Right. It's not to punish. It would be easy to go to someone and say, oh, man, you, you did bad. And we're, we're about to bring the hammer. All right. But that's <laughs> not the point. The point is repentance. The point is forgiveness. The point is restoration. Uh, and that's the thing, the, 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 the point of this whole conversation. But verse 16, if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the question comes up then, what role does the witnesses play? And there, there's probably two possibilities here. What's the role of the witnesses? Converted. On the back of the first person. All right, now who is the first person? The, the, the person who went or the person who did wrong? Um, in this case, I mean the person that went. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. Possibly to support the one who confronts his erring brother by bringing additional testimony uh, about the sin committed. Uh, there's another, maybe even more judicial uh, reason, which, I mean, what you said was very valid, and I think that's absolutely correct, but I think there's a little more to it. To possibly provide witnesses to the confrontation in the event that it goes before the whole church. Because now you have two people now who are witnessing saying, hey, first guy went, I talked to this guy, he didn't respond well. You bring more people with you and they'll be able to say, no, I saw it. He didn't respond well to that either. Uh, and so when that goes before the whole church, uh, it becomes a matter of church discipline, which I mean, I, I, this is kind of where I wish Alan was still part of the conversation. Uh, because church discipline can be a very tough thing. And I'd be curious to know if anybody's been a, a part of a church that had to participate in that, where they had to, to uh, a church came, brought a person before and said, look, we have this grievance against this person. We got to choose whether or not we're going to disbar them from our fellowship until there's a time of restoration. I've never been a part of a church, but not to that degree, but I have known churches that have been torn apart because of this and I decide I don't like what you're doing and so I go and tell you and then I get other people involved in it and the person feels pretty beaten up and it starts a lot of trouble in churches. All right. So what's the flip side of that though? What's the, what would be the rationale behind because this is Jesus telling us to do this. What's the reason? 
I think you need clarification. These guys, you know, you got two different stories and what really happened, and you know, they're they're to ask questions and clarify is the thing that it's it's. All right, let's say, and you make a good point. Let's say, I mean, it's crystal clear. What they did went not only against, you know, the Bible, but maybe even against the law. And there's no sign of repentance. And this is going on and on and on. Uh, and not only Jesus, but even Paul, and we're going to look at that in a minute, uh, says, all right, there's things that we got to do with this. Don't have fellowship with them. What's the reasoning behind that? What What happens if they stay? Contagion. Could it be like contagion, like a cancer? All yeah. right, because all of a sudden right. you have this little bit of evil, and it's a word that I think we don't – I'm not saying we need to start calling people evil, but if we recognize evil, sinful actions, then what you got to do is you got to at least be able to address those. Uh, and if you don't, that spreads within the church. And all of a sudden you start looking and it's not hard to just start looking at different churches out there and you start scratching your head. Like, how are they even still a church? Uh, and so I get it. I don't want to be a part of a conversation where you're having to vote someone out of the church. But I also understand that Jesus himself said, look, there's going to be times where this is going to be necessary. Uh, Paul says, all right, this is the, if you have this going on in your fellowship, uh, you need to ban them from your fellowship. All right, let's keep on reading, uh, unless anybody has a comment about that. What is you got, that, Sheila? Is that not how our the state of our church uh, in general has gotten to where it though diluted at this point? I believe it is because we didn't do that. Yeah, I believe we were politically correct on things. We allowed things that weren't of God into our churches. And... I think that's part of it, but I'm very sympathetic uh, to what Nancy had to say uh, because how easy is it to pile on and to become right. the judgmental and stuff? I mean, this is something you've got to go on with, go into with a great amount of prayer and even heartbreak. Right. If your heart, if your heart isn't broken for what's about to happen, then you probably shouldn't be involved in the conversation. Um, it, has, it has to do with the witness of the church. It does. It absolutely does. If it's, if it's, a, if it's a, an offense that is damaging the witness of the church, then it needs to be corrected. All right. All right. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even then to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? <laughs> let it be as a Gentile or a tax collector? What are they saying here? My translation says, treat them as you would. Those are sinners, right? So I guess we would not much, uh, well, uh, you know that we didn't think very much of tax collectors at all. So I guess it's kind of movie. You're right. See, I, mean, uh, I guess then just kind of take a step back or get away from them. Yeah. But what is the end goal that we have to keep in mind? And we want them to repent. Right. Yeah. We, Repentance and restoration. Right. Restoration. Uh, right. So, uh, Paul wrote in, oh man, I don't think I have my Bible reference here, Romans 5, 9 through 13. And he kind of talks about this. Uh, I wrote to you in my letter not to us. So there's a previous letter and Paul's now referencing that letter. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. I mean, there, this is a kind of a big list here, right? Um, it's easy to hone in on just the one. It's like, oh, wait, there's other things here, too. Not even to eat with such a one. 
So it's in the one Corinthians. Is that Romans? What? Oh, okay. You're right. You're right. You're right. First uh, Corinthians five. Yeah, I, I missed part of my line here. Paul said, "For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church when you are to judge?" Like Sheila said, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Man, that sounds kind of hard. Because now we're getting personal. These are people I've known. These are people who I've done life with. These are people that, I mean, you fill in the blank. How tough is that? But what's the alternative? To allow them maybe to continue in what they're doing, how much worse could that possibly be? I mean, it's it's tough, but Jesus speaks to these things. Uh, so now I'm in verse 18, Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed to heaven. And there's a whole bunch of there's a couple of verses, a whole bunch. There's like two verses that are about to come up that people like scratch their head like, what does this mean? Uh, so break this down just for a minute. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If you possibly, and if you don't get this right, I do not blame you because I wouldn't have gotten it either. But does this sound familiar to you at all? Have you perhaps seen this uh, in just a few chapters earlier? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Well, my footnote says Matthew 16, 19. <laughs> I cheated. I, well, it's not cheating. I do the same thing. I mean, <laughs> Al will be saying something. I got it up in my, uh, you know, very expensive Bible software program. Yeah, it and makes me sound smarter than I am. Sixteen nineteen. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And All right, back up, back up. Heaven. What's the context of what you're reading? Verse 18. Oh, no, the whole thing. What's the header over your passage? Oh. Peter's confession of Christ. Right. Thank you. All right, now go ahead and read it. Oh, um, and I and I will give you the kingdoms of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right. Jesus is hanging out with his uh, uh, disciples. Hey, who do the people say I am? Ah, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're uh, Isaiah. Some say you're Elijah, you know, rose from the dead or all that stuff. And then he asked him a very poignant question. What was the question? Who do you say, Who do you say I am? And, uh, you know, a lot of times you, you, you can look at Peter and a lot of the things that Peter said, and you just scratch your head going like, what was he thinking when he said that? Uh, not this time. Now, immediately after, yes, but not this time, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which is what caused Jesus to say, blessed are you, Peter, and all this other stuff. And he says, the key, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And for 2,000 years, people have been going like, what does that mean? All right, what does it mean? Well, we also see it a couple of chapters later. Uh, say it again. It is very hard. Uh, so there's what we can look at a little bit is see, all right, what do we know from chapter 18? What are the comparisons between 18 and 16? Because a lot though we got the same kind of words there. We have the keys. Uh, Jesus said the keys, or well, they're a symbol of authority. Uh, the rabbis of the day used to use the words bind and loose to denote decisions about what was and what wasn't permitted. So what we get from that is Peter's going to be able to discern and even pronounce what is good, what is noble, what is uh, uh, permitted, all under the umbrella of God's authority. So God is the one who's going to be given that to them. Now, notice this in verse chapter 18, uh, when he talks about this again, there's a couple of differences here. One, when he says you, the you is plural. So now he's taking what he said to Peter and he's saying it's not just going to be applied to Peter. You disciples, you also are going to be able to do this, uh, this binding. Now, does that mean that God is somehow bound to this but we got, I don't know, 10, 15, 15 people in this room, and we all came to the conclusion that we think God 
needs to provide us all with uh, Mr. Misty Parface from Dairy Queen. Do you think God is somehow bound to that? <laughs> no, because we're not praying according to what God's will is. Uh, so God puts it on the hearts of his those who diligently and earnestly seek him, uh, and they'll pray according to his will, and God just can't wait to do that. And he puts certain church leaders of influence and position that say, this, not this. Uh, always get it right? No. We have a long and rich history of always not getting it right. But that's the objective. That's God's plan for this. And so now we get to the verse that we started out with, uh, chapter 18, verse 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so commonly, this is a verse that we apply to prayer. If we get two or three people gathered in a room and we pray, God's with us and he's going to listen to us and he's going to do it. But if we apply it to the context of everything that we just read, uh, all of a sudden, it's like those verses. All right, let's back up. Those two or three people in verse 20, where have we seen this two or three before? Father, son, no, no. Just recently, I'm talking about within verses of oh, this verse. 16, verse 16. What does it say? But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more of you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That verse directly ties into what this statement is. So where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. These are very likely those witnesses that Jesus was talking about earlier. Uh, Where is this says in the Bible a strand of three cord, a cord of three strands? Is Proverbs. That man, it certainly sounds like it's in Proverbs. Yeah. And if no one else knows differently, I'm going to say it is and look maybe smart. Well, okay, not as smart like as my that. thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> sort of sounds than, like that. And, right, right. So. What we're about to do now, because this whole thing, even though it was about, you know, restoration, forgiveness is a part of restoration. Now we're going to get into the question, to the, the to the parable. And we're in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Now, this is one I can relate to more than the other, because <laughs> this is the one I'm the oldest of four. And so when Peter approaches Jesus and asks him, hey, if my brother does this, I'm almost in my mind looking in my mind. He's looking at Andrew, his brother. Jesus, if how many times have I got to forgive? Now, I don't know what Andrew did uh, now, odds are this is a very generic question anyway. But in my mind, that's how my mind works. I'm the oldest of four. My sister and brothers were always trying to uh, do something. Uh, and let's just say I didn't always forgive like I probably should have. Verses 21, 22. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as how many times? Seven times. Peter knows something. Maybe you even know this, too. The rabbinical code was basically you forgive three times, hmm. not for four. <laughs> Who does that? That's foolishness. But three times, that is a noble thing. And so what does Peter do? Double. Jesus, I feel like forgiving my brother seven times. Does that sound good? So, I mean, it's almost like he's like looking for that. Yeah, Peter, what? Peter, that's great. Of course. Look, Peter, you're amazing. You want to forgive seven times. And Peter is deflated pretty quickly <laughs> because Jesus hey, had man, a totally. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're good. Hey, man, we do this every Wednesday night, man. Every Wednesday night. Y'all come back. You hear us. We say in the South. <laughs> Thank y'all. No, no. Appreciate you stopping by. Peter wanted to hear. You are that rock again. He wanted that warm, fuzzy. That is an excellent point. He wanted that 
affirmation from Christ. I was going to say attaboy, but I like the way you said yeah, it. Yeah, better. I mean, it's the same thing. I want to build my church on this. Um, I want to build my forgiveness series of lecture on this. Right. But he got something totally different. He got to, he did get something totally different because Jesus uh, had a totally different response. Uh, Jesus said to him, I don't say to you, now I am curious. What does your Bible say here? There's a certain number, and it, depending on your translation, it's going to be different. I tell seven you, times, 70. Seven times. All right, so you have 77 times. Nelson, did you say 70 times seven? That's what yeah. mine Mine's 70 times seven. A lot of scholars go back and forth on this. I read a lot of commentaries, and nobody can seem to seem to settle on, is it 77 times or 70 times seven? Uh, but the one thing that every single one of them agree on, and I bet you already know what it is, is this. It's a bunch. It doesn't matter because oh. that's not the point. If you're counting, you got a whole other problem. That's an even better oh, point than good. I was going to make. Because <laughs> yeah, the point isn't how many times you forgive. The point is who is capable of forgiving the amount of times that Jesus can forgive Anyway, uh, now we get to see this in action because Jesus has a story. It's story time with Jesus. Uh, what's a parable? I don't want to assume that because we talk about parables. You've been in church your whole life. You know there's a parable of just about everything. But what it's is a parable? A point made in a story. That's good. Mm -hmm. An early story. Make a heavenly point, man. I haven't heard that in a long time, and I, I just went way back. Say it again. I love that answer. An earthly story to make, make a, a heavenly, heavenly point. point. I like that. I have a short tale that illustrates the universal truth. It's not as good as that one. A type of narrative with a motive or moral significance which initiates comparison. Uh, yeah, there's comparison involved. That's the main idea. It places two or more objects together, usually for the purpose of comparison. It makes something that might be hard to understand relatable by comparing with something familiar. And that's what we're about to see here. Uh, and, and it struck me for the first time today. Notice how Jesus's parable doesn't directly address Peter's question. How many times should I forgive? Oh, well, let me tell you a story. All right. I'm not going to tell you how many times to forgive. I'm going to tell you about what massive forgiveness looks like. Uh, because Jesus has a totally different point he wants to talk about. Uh, so verses 23 through 27. Kind of keep an eye on what the different talking the the parable points are what are the comparison points in this and we're not going to do the whole thing alan is going to pick up the second half john is preaching this sunday uh alan he's going to get the first half of this parable and then alan's going to uh, pick it up the next sunday which means next wednesday night bible study you'll get the rest of the parable uh and uh it should be really good so therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to saddle, settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since, and the fact that none of y'all went, Ooh, means that that hadn't really sunk in just how much that is. We're about to look at that. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. David, can you maybe get that door? Um, so as we look at this passage, Keep the principal comparisons in mind. There was a king. Who did the king represent? Christ. Uh, God, Christ. Hello. Yes. Um, there was a servant. Who did the servant represent? Uh, Pretty much us. 
So look, there's this should be an easy parable because there's two comparison points and really not that big of a mystery because a lot of times Jesus would tell a parable and then the disciples would be like, what? You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. And Jesus, I just imagine something. Sometimes I imagine Jesus just had a good laugh to himself because he just knew what was going on. Uh, so so how does the parable help here? So I ask you a question. How would you go about trying to describe the immeasurable forgiveness of God? That's your task. How would you do it? Well, what's your reference point to begin with? Because who knows the immeasurable vast riches of God to begin with? So Jesus lays it out there. He said, all right, I got a story. He's going to paint the picture. The parable does so by telling a story about something everyone knows about. And what's that? Money. Yeah. Owing that money, right? Uh, they say there's two certainties in life, and one of them is taxes. All right. Everybody knows about the money thing. And so all of a sudden, the, re the, the original hearer goes, oh, yeah, I get that. Uh, now, something that also struck me today when I was reading this, upon a casual read, it could be inferred that the servant had been loaned money. I think all of my life that I've read this, I was under the impression that he was loaned money with the expectation the money was to be repaid, which makes you wonder, who is this guy that someone would loan him that much money to begin with? And how much money did this guy have that he could do that and not even you know blink about when it comes, oh, you can't repay it? I ain't worried about it. Um that's how I've always read it. But in this case, it is very likely that this was a servant who was a high-level official responsible for the king's vast sum of money. So it was almost like he was a steward of this money. And all of a sudden, something happened to a big swath of it. Uh, and then the king, the scripture says, um, the... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It talks about how he was called to account for the money that was missing. All right. And so in this case, it sounds like embezzlement to me. And, oh, it could have been nothing more than mismanagement. All right. If it was embezzlement, he should have been fired whether he paid it back or not. You would think. Uh, but also keep in mind that this is, as far as we know, this isn't something that actually happened. Yeah. So, and so all of these little details that we can, and I'm really good about, you know, working my way through the weeds and getting lost. Uh, that That's not really the point. The point here is that there's a guy who owes so much money, he can't possibly pay it back. And you have this king, this master, who has so much that he does, if it's missing... Uh, okay, I'm not really hurt by it. Now, let's talk about the money just for a minute. Uh, the talent was the largest unit of currency that we find in the Bible, equivalent to approximately 6,000 days worth of wages. That's about 16 and a half years. So the money you make in about 16 and a half years, well, the guy owed 10,000 times that. Now, I don't know about you. I did the math on my phone calculator. 165,000 years to pay off that debt. Working at minimum wage, uh, I don't have that much time. I take, I take that back. 165,000 years to pay off the debt, about $5 billion working minimum wage for all those years. Again, all this isn't the point. The point is what? The king forgave him. God's forgiveness is there's infinite. A, there's a debt that we can't possibly pay. There's a king that can just shrug it off without even blinking. Uh, that's where we are. We we get some kind of glimpse about how huge this debt is. It couldn't, I mean, the guy said, all right, sell your family into slavery. That wouldn't even come close to doing it. But when he begged for forgiveness, and we're going to see later, that takes a tragic turn. But right now he begs forgiveness, and the king goes, all right, I, I, will, I will give you grace and mercy. He repented. Well, 
I, if that was the end of the story, I think you could say that. But we know that's not the end of the story. Uh, and if you and if you don't know the end of the story, it's right there. You had permission to skip ahead till next week and go ahead and read it. Uh, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. It doesn't end well because he had an opportunity to forgive greatly and he did not, which is also a part of the main point. Uh, next next week's story is where we're going to leave off. Uh, now, I'm, I want to get out of the Bible study aspect of this uh, and talk a little bit personally here a little bit because about five, six years, five years ago, I, I wrote an article called The Freedom to Forgive. I put it on my website and stuff like that because this was something that I had been thinking of, uh, some kind of stuff that was going on that, that happened to me in a previous church and that kind of thing. And I was just like, I was convicted that what I was trying to carry wasn't mine to carry. Uh, and so I just started writing some stuff down. Um, so I just want to share a few things of that with you. Maybe you get something out of it. Maybe you don't. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. Consider this. After Jesus had been betrayed, after Jesus had been put through an illegal trial, after Jesus had been mocked, after Jesus had been beaten and whipped, after Jesus had been stripped naked, after Jesus had been forced to carry his own execution device through hostile crowds, after Jesus had been nailed to a cross and hanged to die in excruciating agony, after Jesus had been taunted to prove himself, by coming off the cross, after Jesus had been jeered at by the criminals being executed next to him, after Jesus had to push himself up using the nails in his feet just so he could breathe, he was still somehow able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't say those words hoping they would change their minds and release him. He said those words because he knew what would happen that the full wrath of God poured out on the world. He said those words because he knew that there were some there who would eventually repent and turn to God, and that without forgiveness, that would never happen. If there was ever someone who would have been justified for not forgiving, it would have been Jesus. Yet Jesus did forgive, and in so doing, showed the world that forgiveness has no limits. There is no one that can possibly say that they were treated worse than Jesus was treated, and it's okay not to forgive. Consider this. If someone comes to you and has done you great harm, and they sincerely ask you for forgiveness, and you choose to give it to them, you are following the example modeled by Jesus, but there's more. You also take a great load off of two people, them and you. But maybe there are people who've harmed you that, you that don't ask you forgiveness. Maybe there are people who've hurt you and either don't realize it or they don't care. Even worse, maybe there are people who know they hurt you and are energized by it. What then? Well, there's still great freedom that comes when we let go of that hurt and choose to forgive. When we forgive, we follow the example that Jesus modeled for us and we free ourselves from a heavy, crippling weight that adds to the harm already done to us. So how do we let go? Now, this is how this all started. I'm sitting in a restaurant. might be Chili's. If any of y'all know me, you know I like my Chili's. And I was thinking about this, and something hit me. So it was one of those things where I pull out a napkin and a pen, and I write it down, and I still have that thing somewhere because uh, it hit me. And this might not work for you, but it works for me to this day. <laughs> Forgiveness comes when we take a long, thoughtful look at a person who wronged us and are able to see the depths of the brokenness of that person and respond to their brokenness rather than respond to their transgression against us. Good stuff. I, I find that if I can somehow, and I pray this frequently, God help me see the state of their soul. Because if I can do that, all of a sudden, everything else stops mattering. Hmm. nothing else. I mean, I, I, I find it hard to hold a grudge. 
simply because of a compassion that almost overwhelms. I believe that's how Jesus was able to forgive those who harmed him as he was suffering on the cross. He saw our brokenness and he looked on that brokenness with compassion. If we sincerely pray for the willingness and the ability to look upon the brokenness of the people that have hurt us and respond with compassion, we can be confident that God will honor that prayer. I think there's certain prayers that God just can't wait to answer. And one of them is God help change my attitude. Uh, if we're able to pray something like that, it'll free us from the hurt that has kept us from letting go. So that was uh, kind of a personal note there at the end of this uh, study. Anybody got any questions or anything before we close Where this thing out? Where did you publish that? Well, if you go to my website, uh, www.garynet.com, I have a blog site, uh, and it's on there. But I can certainly uh, email that out to anybody. Matter of fact, that might be something that I end up putting in a newsletter or something we got coming out. Uh, There's that, a very interesting question. What you got? He said, they don't know what they do. Yeah. What about those who we know what they're doing? They do. Are they forgiven? Yeah. Well, yes. In that, you know, as forgiven as anybody else who responds to him in repentance. I mean, at some point, God is going, the only way we can respond to God is by understand first god revealing that i need you need to respond uh, the natural man you know this the natural man receives not the things of the spirit of god uh but when god opens the eyes to the opens your eyes to the depravity of your own soul and you are able to respond god i can't do anything i recognize i'm a sinner when we cry out for forgiveness he is quick to give forgiveness do we have to ask for it to be forgiven? I don't know if you necessarily have to use words like they are a, a spell. Matter of fact, uh, don't recognize their sins. I, I'm convinced there's a lot of people who, I matter of fact, I'm not. I'm not a person who can actually pinpoint a time in my life when I converted. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I think it's one of those things. I mean, it's as you gradually come to know, who's to say what are the what are the right words? Or if you just demonstrate, well, first of all, any, everybody knows that you can say one thing and not mean it. Uh, but if God is the knower of our hearts and our attitudes and our minds, uh, and he knows the grumblings of our hearts, then he knows, even if we don't say anything at all, if we repent, um, for whatever reason, he will honor that. that and forgiveness is given. I don't know if any of that makes any sense or not. Good lesson. Yes. Anybody got anything else? Good lesson. All right. Oh, okay. Maria tells us the cord of three strands is not easily broken. Uh, Bill, that is Ecclesiastes 412. Thank you, Maria. Appreciate that. So it's close to Proverbs. It's close. I mean, it's right there. Uh, all right. Well, then we're going to shut this thing out. I appreciate y'all joining us. Anybody online have any questions or anything real quick before we shut it down?